piercings, jewellery, work life, stories, personal experiences, what more do you want? Oh, the tea? Well, look no further. Welcome to Tea with D. I'm your host, Deanna. With 11 years of experience in the body piercing world, there are many stories I can tell. This podcast will go into the history of piercing, what happened, what historical events happened. There will also be submissions from clients about their own experiences and the history of them being pierced too. There will also be interviews with other piercers and other peers within the industry, it being jewellery specialists or jewellery makers. So why not sit back and listen to Tea with D? Hello and welcome to this week's episode, Tea with D. Just want to say thank you to those who have listened to the first episode. I really appreciate it. All the support and love is amazing. I will hopefully be putting out episodes every week, fingers crossed. Still trying to get used to this mic and editing system. It's completely different to what I usually use, so please bear with me. In this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about Operation Spanner. Content warning, this is a very touchy subject and a historical event. If you aren't ready to listen to this episode, a new one will be out next week. I took extracts from Wikipedia to learn more about the history of Operation Spanner, what happened prior, during, after the trial. I also have taken extracts from the Allen documentary evidence book edited by Paul King, mainly from Chapter 5 by Matt Loder. There are also quotes taken from gayinthe80s.com. So let's go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, where homosexuality was portrayed very negatively. There was a survey done by the British Social Attitude Survey which found 75% of the population thought that homosexual activity was always or mostly wrong. In 1987, a high-profile public information campaign posted out an educational leaflet about HIV to every home in Britain. It's called Don't Die of Ignorance. It was a public health campaign which began in 1986 by the UK government to raise awareness of HIV. Norman Fowler, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Services, felt that the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, wasn't a natural supporter of the campaign, as she felt that informing people of HIV and unprotected sex would make people more likely to engage in such practices. The advertising campaign was made by the agency TBW. The company had run previous campaigns for the government to raise awareness of blood donations. The designer of the campaign, Malcolm, was interviewed by The Guardian in 2017. Here's what he said. The big problem was that nobody knew about it. It was like an alien plague. Where did it come from? How big would it get? Panic and speculation was spreading. Fowler claimed that 90% of the population recognised the advert and a vast number changed their behaviour because of it. And as it was a life and death situation, there was no time to think about whether it might offend one or two people. And as hospital wards were full of young men dying. One of the things that I did see getting written a lot was that there were individual targeted messages from the campaign which were created for dentists and tattooists slash piercers who are at sepsic risk. So there's your little bit of a background about what was going on politically when it came to the LGBTQ plus community, mainly towards homosexual men, HIV and AIDS awareness and so forth. 
Now, we're going to go on to the next bit, which is about the OPS, which is Obscene Publication Squad. There is a lot of details within this section that do go into details. So if you're not ready to listen to this, then please, please hold on to next week's episode. A police investigation led by the OPS, which is Obscene Publication Squad of the Metropolitan Police, started in 1987 and ran for approximately three years. It was called Operation Spanner. In that three-year span, they had questioned approximately 100 men and bisexual men. Basically, they were investigating same-sex male s and The Obscene Publication Squad was a branch of the Met Police tasked with enforcing obscenity law, connect to the Obscene Publications Act 1959. Basically, hardcore pornography was illegal in the 1980s. The UK were the only ones to have it still illegal, though ownership was not a criminal offence. It finally became legal in the 2000s. After three years of initial inquiry in 1979, it was revealed that the squad had been running a protection racket, which basically means organised crime over the Soho sex industry for at least two decades. One detective receiving 25 grand a year in bribes. Prosecutors described a corrupt organisation in which the newbies would be coerced to attend the Friday night shareouts, where officers would be taken one by one into a small room, usually a storeroom, at Scotland Yard and handed cash. Over a two-year period, 13 officers were jailed, and that's how the squad got the nickname the Dirty Squad. After the scandal, officers were only limited to two years of service, extended to three, in an effort to combat corruption. Later on, the squad gained its significance during the video nasties. Basically, this is when the NVALA, National Viewers and Listeners Association, referred to a number of films, typically low-budgeted horror or explosion films, were criticised for their violent content by the press, social commentators or religious organisations in the 1980s, during which officers raided video rental stores and seized horror films, mostly Evil Dead 2 or The Driller Killer, as well as a crackdown on gay pornography. Many people accused it of having a Christian fundamentalist agenda. The Lesbian and Gay Policing Association said its activities damaged the relations between the LGBT community and the police. In 1987, Greater Manchester Police acquired a videotape codenamed KL7. This videotape showed a group of men sexually involved with each other, S&M sexual related activity. There is a sequence in which one man passed a nail through a piercing in another man's foreskin and hammered it into a block of wood before making a series of incisions into the man's penis with a scalpel. The police launched an investigation into this tape and began looking for men featured in the video. Their inquiries expanded as further tapes were seized these would show men whipping, spanking and doing wax play. Eventually, it led to 16 police forces getting involved. There was a meeting to discuss everything that had been found. And that's when they decided that OPS, Obscene Publication Squad, should lead the investigation, which is now called Operation Spanner. Now, we're going to go back a little bit to where I said that in the tape, 
there is a scene where the man is nailing a foreskin piercing. Now, piercings is a big deal within this case. Not a lot of people think it, but there is. There's relations big time. So I want to go back a little bit as to how the piercing stuff got involved. Back then, piercing in the UK was still a grey area. Of course, the punk scene had grown in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Most popular piercings were like nostril, septum, bridge, navel and more. Tattoo studios were growing in and around London and we had Alan, aka Mr. Sebastian. After having realised that there might be a market for the skills, Alan had developed piercing himself. He would open his own studio in South London. I'm not entirely sure when, but I'm guessing it was either in the late 70s, early 80s. He had been driven to pierce professionally due to the lack of sterilisation and care taken during events, activities in which the Spanner case be in relation with. He quotes in a interview, I saw a couple of men getting some piercings during a sort of S&M scene. Everything was so filthy, dirty and sterile. I remember thinking the surroundings aren't so good. But that doesn't matter so much if whoever is doing the piercing is neither drunk nor unwashed and the equipment is clean. That is how I first thought somebody ought to be doing something a little better. And so I set out to learn and it wasn't easy. I had a couple of friends who were doctors so I could speak with them. Neither one thought much of piercing, but they were willing to give me that information they could. So gradually beginning with them and thinking this thing's out for myself, quite a lot of my piercings were really done. Not because I particularly wanted them, but because I wanted to find out about them. I didn't particularly want the nose piercing, I've got it now, but I didn't particularly want it, nor a navel piercing. On the 4th of November 1987, the beginning of the raids, they were carried out in Bolton and Shrewsbury. In one location, the police brought in sniffer dogs to go around the property and the garden. The police claimed the reasoning was due to a video where the individuals involved could have been killed. Later on, the defence lawyers questioned the likelihood of men's consensual home sex videos being mistaken as snuff films. This is a type of film that shows or portrays a scene of actual homicide. The leading detective of OPS admitted that he could not explain how such error could have been made. He later insisted such reckless and escalating violence left unchecked was bound to lead to someone getting killed. Those interviewed during the raids described a loose-knit circle of men who met through adverts in gay contact magazines and gathered regularly at different locations for S&M sex sessions. At times, they were video recorded and shared with the group. Most of the men cooperated fully with the police, acknowledging their involvement in the videotapes and the groups, unaware that they might have broken a law. There was further raids happening during the month of November, one place being Wales, another being Birmingham, where a large amount of SNM related videos, content, diaries was seized. The police continued raiding the other places in connection with the gay community. Offices of the gay magazine Sir, other contact magazines such as Gay Galaxy and Corporal Contacts. That month, the first reports of the investigation appeared in the press via Him magazine. 
One person who was questioned by the police in relation to OP told the magazine the police were working from a diary seized during a raid earlier on and had mentioned snuff movies in the questioning. An officer with GM police denied that the operation was related to snuff films but went on to falsely speculate that investigation may be connected to an unsolved murder in Leeds in 1985. By the beginning of 1988, the police were stumped. They still did not know the identities of the two men on the KL7 tape. They had interviewed the man who filmed the scene, though no faces were visible in the video. The OPA attempted to identify one of the men via his finger. Basically, the index finger of his left hand had a joint deformity. 29th of March, Hampshire police reported that he had spotted the individual in an episode of Paranormal. The detectives got hold of the taping and recognised their subject. A week later, on the 7th of April, the police interviewed the man and proceeded to raid his home. He identified the other man on the KL7 tape and a raid was carried out the same day. The case began to come together in 1989. Over the course of the investigation, 400 videotapes were seized. Though a large number of these were commercially released and in some cases non-pornographic. The cost of this investigation was estimated 2.5 million. The police were unable to find any participants who had not consented to activities, nor any long-lasting injuries. In September 1989, 16 men were charged with more than 100 offences, including assault, occasioning actual bodily harm. Several were charged with aiding and abetting assaults. The charges brought forward against the men included conspiracy charges, so the case was referred to the Old Bailey. Later on, these charges were dropped, which led to accusations that the Gov viewed the trial as a test case. One of the 16 men was indeed Alan, Mr. Sebastian. The explicit analogy between tattooing and sexual fetishism for Alan in the context of SNM play is borne out in a scene from pornographer Roger Earle's 1988 BDSM film Moth to a Flame, in which he plays a key role. This is likely to have been filmed around the time of the arrest. Tattooing alongside body piercing forms part of a menu of the SM practices to be inflicted on the submissive man in the film. In Alan's tattooing world, there is a lack of distinction between decorative and aesthetic formation, and its sexual one is further complicated by his choice of imagery. There are scenes of SM sexual activity, which are actually detailed in a lot of his designs and mirroring his particular tastes. These designs and tattoos could have been uncovered by the raids or could have been used possibly in the court by the prosecutors as these could have been seen as a obscene publication. But who knows? A lot of the details of the court case wasn't reported for Alan. It was summarised very quickly. On October 29th, 1990, the trial began. The judge heard legal arguments from some of the accused that they could not be guilty because everyone gave consent. However, the judge threw that out of court, saying consent was not a defence. People must sometimes be protected from themselves. The judge relied heavily on the R versus Coney, 
1882 case in which participants in bare-knuckle boxing were found guilty of assault despite their consent, and R versus Donovan 1934 case where a man was convicted of assault for caning a woman with her consent. After the ruling, the defendants changed their pleas to guilty and were convicted on the 7th of November. Rest of the trial was dedicated to sentencing only, starting on December the 11th, 1990. A prosecutor spoke about the defendant's behaviour, brute homosexual activity in sinister circumstances about as far removed as can be imagined from the concept of human love. The way he described the group with certain words echoed loudly. The Daily Telegraph branded the group torture vice gang and the times saying leaders of a violent and perverted sex gang eventually the case r versus allen was separated from the investigation as there was no evidence of connection between himself and the other men who were charged allen like other men was charged with assault occasioning actual bodily harm from performing genital piercing on a client he was also charged with using aesthetics without a license and for sending obscene material through the posts, pretty much photographs of piercings. The judge was not willing to take the consent of the participants into account. Alan pleaded guilty in 1990. He received 15 months, which was supposed to be two years. Under the judge, it was put through the books as though Alan had pierced his lover's penis looking into the trial it's pretty upsetting to see what was used against them the defense attorney did all they could one even pointed out the number of subjects raised by the prosecution including the hiv status of some of the men she warned that the world's press is listening the independent noting that the men's hiv status in an article a lot of the reporters wrote articles about the judge's horror look reaction to watching the videotapes. He requested an adjournment after white in the face. He also responded to a question about the KL7 videotape. I am not likely to have forgotten the film. I don't think any of us likely to forget that particular film. The end of the first day, one of the defendants had to go and seek medical attention due to press photographers allegedly pushing and kicking this individual to the ground as he left court. Both of his wrists were broken. Two days before the sentencing was due, the lead detective went to the press and published an article in the Daily Mail in which he called the defendants the most horrific porn ring ever to appear before British court. On the 19th of December, the judge sentenced the men between 12 months to four and a half years. He quoted, Much has been said about the individual liberty and the rights people have to do what they want with their bodies, but the courts must draw a line between which is acceptable and which is not. In this case, the participants clearly lie on the wrong side of the line. On the 16th of February 1991, an estimated 5,000 people marched through central London to protest the outcome of Operation Spanner Trial. Five defendants appealed to the Court of Appeal in February 1992. Three judges upheld the men's convictions, ruling their consent as immaterial. However, one lord acknowledged 
that men did not appreciate that their acts were criminal. He reduced five of the prison sentences, cutting the longest down to six months. He then granted them leave to appeal to the House of Lords. At the time, it was the UK's highest court of appeal, saying there was a general public importance in setting the question of whether the prosecution must prove that a victim did not consent before it had, could obtain a conviction for assault or wounding. August 1992, the campaign group Countdown on Spanner formed in effect to reverse the Court of Appeal ruling and demand the recognition that S&M is valid, central and legitimate part of human sexuality. The following month, it began to publish a newsletter called Spanner People and stage a public demo calling the lead detective to resign. In 1996, the Countdown on Spanner received the Large Non-Profit Organisation of the Year Award. In March 1993, the five defendants appealed their case to the House of Lords. The defence argued that interfering in the private lives of consenting adults were justified only in cases where private activity spills over into the public domain with adverse effects. She continued to list several reasons as to why the case should not have gone to trial. The fact that no one had complained to the police, no serious or permanent injuries resulted from the activities, and it was done in a controlled environment, limited to those wishing to take part. The appeal was dismissed, a 3-2 majority. There were judgments in light of other case law involving BDSM, you had the R versus Wilson, 1996, involved a man who used a hot knife to brand his wife's buttocks with his initials. She had given consent, so the Court of Appeal ruled that there is no criminal act, basically. There was also another case, DPB versus Morgan in 1976. I'm not going to go into details about this case as it could be very triggering and upsetting. If you do want to read it up, you are welcome to. There are blogs that have written about this. As because of the case, the Law of Sexual Offences Act 2003 was changed on that the belief on part of the defendant that the victim consented must be reasonable. So in one court case, it finds that consent, you know, is of criminal liability and in the other court, it finds that it's simply mistaken about consent can be enough to escape criminal liability. So why wasn't the same logic applied to 16 victims of Operation Spanner? In my opinion, there's only really one difference. The other two cases spoken about occurred in the context of heterosexual marriage. In 1995, the Spanner Trust was established. It provided assistance to the Spanner defendants, lobby for a change in the British law to legalise S&M, and to provide assistance to any person subject to discrimination because of their consensual sexual behaviour. While there have been many proposals to reform the laws about what has been deemed self-destructive and socially dangerous behaviour, Little has changed to date. On directornotes.com, there is an interview with Charlie Line, who made a short film documentary on Operation Spanner 
called Lasting Marks. There is a full in-depth interview with Lynn about it all. There's also in the uh, video, there are many um, pictures of different statements in newspapers, different articles posted, you name it, there's all sorts and it's a really good short film so if you want to watch it, please do. Michael Helms, who was the lead detective of obscene publication, wrote a book called Dirty Squad about the insides of the operation. You can find the full details via kathyfox.wordpress.com. So there you have it, that's Operation Spanner. This episode was pretty tricky to write up about just because there are a lot of details missing there are a lot of things missing (laughs) there's not a lot of people to talk to about it um and I didn't really want to involve all of the victims just because I didn't have permission to so I kind of just wanted it to make it more between Operation Spanner what happened prior during and after and it being in relation to body piercing, like who it affected in the body piercing world, being Alan, aka Mr. Sebastian. So that's it, really. That's that's the episode this week. I hope you've learned from it. I don't want to say so much enjoyed it, just because it is a very unsettling and upsetting uh, episode and case to learn about. As I said, please go and watch the short film documentary done by Charlie Lynn. It's very eye-opening. It's called Lasting Marks. And yeah, enjoy the rest of your week, people, and I will see you next week. Are you a client or somebody who follows me on social media and you want to submit your story? Well, you're in luck. You are welcome to submit it via email, which is Deanna, D-E-A-N-N-A, at pearlcollective.net. This could be an experience you had or just some questions that you want advice on. It could also be a history lesson of when you had the piercing done, who, by and where. It could be 10, 20, 30 years ago. If you are a piercer and you want to come on my podcast, you are more than welcome to contact me. I'd be happy to do an interview with you or just to talk about life. If you want to contact me, you can do so by social media on Instagram, which is pearlcollective underscore, or via email, which is deanna at pearlcollective.net. Thanks again for listening to Tea with Dee.